Hello, everybody. I'm Mike. And I'm Steven. Welcome to Re-Oscar, the podcast where we take an Academy Awards year, look at what they got right, where they went wrong, give you some history, perspective, and useless facts along the way. So this is a pretty good one. We're going way, way back for this one. We're going to the year of 1947, Academy Awards. So we're looking at the movies 1946. We're doing this one in December. Thought it would be fun to look at the year that It's a Wonderful Life was actually released. But it turns out that 46 has a lot of fascinating things to talk about and a lot of interesting movies to get into. Yeah, absolutely. It was a crazy year. Uh, I had no idea what Hollywood was in 1946. Uh, it's it's the year after World War II ended, and there are a lot of uh, things around that. But really, in relation to that, it was it was one of the biggest years in in sales for Hollywood. Um, in fact, there were <clears throat> like 60 percent of the population was going to the movies every week in. 1946 <laughs> 90 yeah. million admissions per week wow i think that yeah i think that we tend to forget that the way movies came out then you know there really wasn't a lot of tv there was radio and movies only came out for like a couple of weeks at a clip so you tend to get high volume of people going to them those movies are gone and they're gone for good i mean there, there was no way to rewatch stuff in in those years unless they re-released it so you had a lot of that you had a lot of people coming back i think who were interested in going out entertainment. So I think that probably plays into it as well. But uh, I agree with you that it really is the war that hangs over much of 46 and the movies that came out. And they're all kind of touched by it in some way, some more so than others. But you're definitely seeing the first use of cinema kind of addressing what went on. And I think it's really interesting for that reason. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, a lot of the films are kind of, like you said, touched by the war and people didn't seem to mind that. There was just such an economic boom. And and from what I read, there was a bit of a, like there was still rationing going on with gas and, and basically money. So people had to sort of stay local. They couldn't drive or travel as much. And so they went to the movies. So 1946 was really like peak movie going. And then in 47, it all sort of died off because all the people who came back from the war were now having kids and having to pay for kids and buying houses in the suburbs. And so they didn't have as much disposable income. Um, so 1946 was really like the apex of it. And and what a good year. Like the films we're going to talk about all just really incredible. And, and they all really had their own things to offer. They do. So let, let's just get this out of the way right at the top. There's just way too much brown face in 1946. So let's just <laughs> throw that out there and get it out of the way. I'd say one instance is too much. So 46 has way too much. Yeah, that's for sure. And then, but it was recognized by the Academy. Yes, it was. <laughs> A different time. Very different. That's time. why I mean, we're here. Yeah, we have to try to place things in their perspective. But yeah, it's 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 pretty uncomfortable watch 70 years on. Right. I, I'm happy I didn't actually get to the Jolson story. <laughs> well, we got uh, some things to say about that one. So, uh, and th actually, that's the thing. Um, these films are super long. The, the bulk of them are at least two hours, closer to three in some cases. And for me, I, I, we had two weeks to watch these, and I did my best, <laughs> but 
being such an early year, other than uh, It's a Wonderful Life and maybe one or two others, I wasn't familiar with them and I had to watch them. And boy, that took a lot of time. Uh, I didn't get through everything, but uh, I did my best and I tried to read up on the things that I didn't get to watch at least so I could talk about them. But uh, holy moly, there were some long films. So the people who were paying the the 50 cents or whatever the average was for a film in 1946 really got their money's worth. You did. And the, mo the thing that's important to talk about too, that this period of time, most of these movies probably had intermissions if they're three hours long, which is something that we've lost nowadays, which I'm rooting to bring back because I, I, I can't imagine sitting through a three, four hour movie without getting a break in the middle now. Another thing I was thinking about as I did this is <clears throat> these are so old that I don't know as I track them down on the internet, I don't know what recording I'm going to get of them. So I don't know if I'm seeing the same thing that you're seeing. Um, and I know in one case, there are actually two different things. Um, there were some edits made to one of the films uh, to each his own. So I saw what I think might be a different version because I actually looked at two different versions and there was uh, content cut out of one of them. But uh, I say that about the the different versions because what I watched of A Duel in the Sun had like a 20 minute introduction of just music. Yeah, it's a full 10 hours. minutes. You have the full overture and then you have like a prologue of yeah. music as well. It's it's a lot, which is just supposed to show you though the, the, the conceit about it though is that they think this is such an important movie that we're going to give you a full 10 minutes of musical introduction. And then you see the movie and it could not be more opposed to the pomp and circumstance in which they open it up with. So I kind of love that. It's, it's, it was something. It really makes a case for having cell phones in the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, boy, that was tough. Uh, to be honest, I didn't sit through it. I, I fast forwarded that. I wasn't going to listen to 20 minutes of music before my three hour film. So well, I started watching it and I was all in sitting down. Then we got to about five minutes in and I'm, and I'm just thinking this, this is really going to keep going. So I did skip the overture and then got to the musical prologue and I just couldn't believe it. So I, that's the thing I questioned what I had collected on the internet to watch did i did i get the the soundtrack is that what i'm watching <laughs> i didn't know so i wasn't sure what version i was looking at but then you know a little fast forwarding and thank god i got through it but uh you know back then uh that was great maybe it was entertaining you go you hear a little music and then you watch a movie it's uh, coming attractions or or previews i guess of the of the 40s i don't know I mean, there are really two films this year that seem to be kind of duking it out as far as awards go and The Lasting Impact, which we I know we try not to get into too much, but I, I mean, it, it's almost unavoidable with It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, that is such a classic film that everybody watches. So it was interesting to see that at, uh, go up against the best years of our lives. And, and uh, I don't know. If it was a drama back then, the, the two of them kind of duking it out. But now, as I look at it, I'm thinking, wow, It's a Wonderful Life is is just so revered. And and uh, I don't know if uh, The Best Years of Our Lives is is really 
as revered. I mean, I guess it's not, but it is certainly held in high esteem. But it was interesting to see the two of them uh, in the same year and, and 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 to be able to get a take on them. And and uh, it gives you a little perspective on It's a Wonderful Life, I think. How I see it is that the reason It's a Wonderful Life, I think, has won because it's being the sort of holiday, so it becomes a classic in its own right. But you have a movie that reflects the war, that reflects the feeling of the war in some ways, but isn't actually about the war. Whereas The Best Years of Our Lives is very much rooted in the war, which is why I think it was such an important movie at the time it came out and resonated. And has resonated less as the years have gone on because we just don't have that same perspective about it. So It's a Wonderful Life being less specifically connected to the war allows it to become more universal and grow as the years go on. That makes sense. I wonder if there were any resurgences of the best years of our lives, like after Vietnam or uh, post-war. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. But yeah. All right. Well, since we're talking about the films, why don't we just jump in with the uh, with the nominations? Um, let's start with supporting actress. Uh, Anne Baxter won for The Razor's Edge. And then uh, the other nominees were Ethel Barrymore for The Spiral Staircase, Lillian Gish, for Duel in the Sun, Flora Robeson for Saratoga Trunk, and Gail Sonnergaard for Anna and the King of Siam. Well, so here we are right off the bat. So Flora Robeson is a British actress who's playing a character of, I would say, unknown ethnicity. Uh, she plays like the, the sassy friend or helper servant. I don't want to go that far. Uh, mm -hmm. To the main character. It's played by Ingrid Bergman. And, uh, I honestly couldn't tell you where I think she's supposed to be from, but she's kind of got an accent. She's in brown face. There it is already. And yeah. uh, look, as far as an acting thing goes, I guess it's a good job because she's British, clearly playing someone non-British and doing a pretty good job of it. But the whole thing is pretty uncomfortable in modern day, which makes it hard for me to, to really love that part. Um, same thing with uh, Gail Sonnegard I and mean, all that. I don't know when you want to get into Anna and the King of Siam, but there's a lot. We'll, we'll maybe get into that one a little bit later. But similar kind of thing. It's just uncomfortable. A bunch of white people pretending to be Asian. It's a lot to take in now. Yeah. Uh, Lillian Gish is funny because as I'm watching Duel in the Sun, my only impression is the reason they nominated her is because compared to Jennifer Jones, it seems like the most stoic, uh, <laughs> yeah. performance and maybe they got tricked into giving her the nomination for that reason Ethel Barrymore getting nominated is kind of odd just because she's not even in the movie all that much she's not a central player in the film it's a pretty small part I was surprised by that uh, the nomination because she's I mean she does have a big moment ultimately but uh, yeah very minimal uh, appearance in the film yeah, I think overall, I just feel like there weren't a ton of great female parts in 46. It's just a lot of the movies are very male-centric. So I think you're getting some of these nominations that, I mean, I have nothing wrong with the performances. I just think there's unfortunately not a lot there for them. Yeah. Uh, but Ann Baxter in The Razor's Edge, let me just say that of all the movies, I, I enjoyed The Razor's Edge quite quite a bit. And um I know there was a remake in the 80s with Bill Murray that I never saw that was kind of a flop. But this one, and anyway, another movie tinged by the war, the characters coming out of World War I, but it has that feeling 
where I think it would resonate a lot with the people in 46, but in some ways has a very modern sensibility where it resonates even now. If you watch I mean, a lot of these movies, I, I got this feeling I was watching it that reminded me a lot of uh, you know, maybe The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, mm-hmm. uh, that, that remake that Ben Stiller had made. There's just this idea of searching for something. Yeah. It, I think, almost resonates more now than it did then, so I was pretty fascinated by it. But uh, Anne Baxter, out of these choices, I think she definitely deserved a win because the, the character changes so much that, to be honest, when, I, when they reintroduce the character after she deals with a tragedy, I almost didn't recognize her. She seemed like a completely different person. So I think that has to be a pretty effective acting job that I almost thought it was a different character they were introducing. Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement. Um, I think that uh, of these five women, she's definitely the one who stood out the most to me. I mean, she has a pretty heavy lift in that film, going through what she goes through and and uh, her story is an interesting one, and I think she handles it really well. I mean, she's she's battling. Like yeah, you're right, she's carrying the emotional weight of the movie because uh, while the main character is searching, he kind of stays pretty steady throughout throughout the whole thing in, in his journey to be a better person, where she's the one who really goes up and down. Yeah, and she's really good. I mean, she's her emotionally, she's just all over the place, and I think that's something you don't see from the other nominees. Um, and I will say, too, that uh, Jean Tierney is fantastic in this film. Uh, she has a similar arc where she just kind of goes dark side after a while. <laughs> and uh, that was really interesting. Not nominated, though. Not nominated. I, w- I was going to say, I was surprised that it was overlooked. And, and just in terms of performances by actresses, I mean, you know, Gilda came out in the same year. Mm-hmm. And Sleep came out in the same year. And so you have really strong performances by Rita Hayworth and Lauren McCall's performances iconic at this point yeah yeah both of those were also overlooked so i i, I was kind of looking at that and, and thought it was pretty curious yeah I, I don't know what that says about the oscars and the academy but uh they they tend to overlook things that um you know the noir aspect of the big sleep maybe that's something that they don't give as much credit to as they should uh i think we'll look at that in subsequent years when we dig into this era a little more but yeah, yeah i was definitely gonna make that point that i think that noir seemed to be criminally overlooked and 46 was a really good year for noir movies that it was. just did not do much in, in the academy so and, and i think that not to get into this whole thing but I, but i think that very much reflects the time period as well because even yeah. noir got darker from the late 30s and the early 40s it, mm-hmm. it the pictures themselves got darker and the tone got darker and i think that very much reflected the war so i think it's a pretty good mirror to what was happening but not a lot of love from the Academy. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to uh, Best Supporting Actor. This is a big one. Uh, Harold Russell won for the best years of our lives. A non-actor, right, who who doesn't have hands and was brought in to play this part uh, and does a really incredible job with it, um, which we'll get into a little more. But uh, the other nominees were Charles Coburn for The Green Years, William Demarest for The Jolson Story, Claude Rains for Notorious, and Clifton Webb for The Razor's Edge. This one was tough for me. I had three who really stood out, and Harold Russell obviously is one of them. Uh, he does such a fantastic job with no experience, and he just captures the tone of that film, and, and I I can see the directing in it. Uh, he, he's open to direction and, and just does an amazing job. Um, Clifton Webb and The Razor's Edge, too, was 
sensational. Uh, I what a crazy character! I really loved when he was on screen. He was just like bigger than life all the time, and just really stood out in that film. Um, and also Charles Coburn in the Green Years. He was sensational, and I'm going to give this to Harold Russell for all the reasons everybody else gives it to him. But uh, I really wrestled with it because Charles Coburn is such a fantastic character actor. And what he does in the green years is a, it's super essential to the story. And he's basically like at the center of it. Um, But B his performance is just so like pitch perfect. Uh, He's, he's crazy and he's funny and he's sincere and he just runs the spectrum of of emotions for a character and he's just really really good so uh he was my top guy until i watched the best years of our lives then then i kind of had to wrestle with it a little more but uh in the end harold russell i think and not only did this did he get this but i think he got uh, an honorary oscar as well because they didn't think that yeah. he would actually win. So yeah, so that's a trivia. That's a, a trivia tidbit for everyone that Harold Russell is the only person in Oscar history to win two Academy Awards with the same partner. Yeah, because when he got the honor of the Oscar, he had two Oscars for the role. But so, what did you pick for this? So I agree with you that I think this is the strongest of all the categories. I, I enjoyed Claude Rains a lot. Notorious, I think he played that with a just a certain subtlety especially after seeing him in The Invisible Man, realizing where he could go, that he uh, was pretty restrained in this one. And, and I appreciated <laughs> like the quiet menace in, in that part. He's uh, so William Douglas is definitely the best part of the Jolson story, probably because he's the one not in blackface, which goes a long way to helping in that. Still dealing with a little bit of PTSD from watching all that blackface in the Jolson story. That was a lot. But he was really fun. Uh, he plays his partner who ends up becoming his manager. And just kind of um, a nice foil in that movie, but and, and just entertaining, very funny and uh, fun to watch. I loved Clifton Webb. I enjoyed everything about that character. He's given off some really strong, like Thurston Howell, Gilligan's Island vibes, which I absolutely really, uh, and his monogram stuff. And I, yeah, he's a character you should absolutely hate, who you end up loving almost more than any other character. Yeah, uh, even even at the very end where he he needs to. Uh, get an invitation to a party he doesn't want to go to so that he can decline it. It's just, it's just fantastic. Everything, everything about it's great. And, and I was a hundred percent leaning towards that. So in, in all things being equal, and, and I agree that Charles Coburn was great too, but I just have this soft spot for Clifton Webb where I just feel like all things being equal, I would give me a word, but, but I agree. You're looking at it from the perspective of the time. There's just no way that Harold Russell doesn't get the award. Because as a non-actor, as someone who actually dealt with this in, in real life, is just a symbol of resilience and was very inspirational. I'll just say this is, makes me sound dumb, but as I'm watching the movie, when I first watched it years ago, my first thought was, I had no idea that they were so good with prosthetic special effects back in, back in the day. I'm like, this is really impressive. And then I obviously realized that they're not and that he actually had those those metal hands so uh that was just me being dumb but anyway uh yeah it was a really effective role and and the heart of the movie so you I think that everything you need to know about 
how people felt about the war and the people coming back is, is told through his eyes in lots of ways. You yeah. see that, that pain of trying to fit in. So maybe, you know, 70 years down the road, I would say you know, Clifton Webb was my favorite performance, but there's just no way that I can argue with Harold Russell winning the award. Yeah, I think uh, my favorite performance was Charles Coburn, but I think everything that surrounds Harold Russell, uh, his story basically is is what you know wins him that Oscar. And I think uh, speaking to what you said about how he represents people is that I think that's why he won the honorary Oscar. It was something about how he represented veterans coming back from the war and inspired them. So he, yeah, he brought that to the screen and uh, it's hard to argue. Uh, I have to say that this is the kind of category that makes this show the most fun for me because it could, it's a toss up, you know, uh, at least to me, uh, it could have gone, you know, any of three ways in my opinion. And, and I love that. I love having to think about that. And that's, that's one of the really fun parts of this show is, is getting to do that. And, and uh, I think we're going to get to do a lot more of it as uh, time goes on. So I'm looking forward to it. I, I think I'm going to go back and watch the Bill Murray razor's edge. Uh, I'd seen it years ago, but uh, I don't have much of a memory of it. And now I just want to see who plays the Clifton web part and what, a what kind of a job they do. Right. right. They can't yeah. follow that. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm going to seek it out myself just to see that. All right, well, let's move on to Best Actress. Another good category. There, you know, there there weren't a lot of supporting roles for women in 1946, but I, there were some solid lead performances, I think. And uh, yeah, they're captured here. So uh, the award went to Olivia de Havilland for To Each His Own, fantastic film. Uh, and then the other nominees were Celia Johnson for Brief Encounter, Jennifer Jones for Duel in the Sun, Rosalind Russell for Sister Kenny and Jane Wyman for The Yearling. How did you lean on this? This was a difficult one for me because I really, I actually did like all these performances and I thought Jane Wyman was pretty effective in, in The Yearling, uh, just playing someone not dealing well with the tragedy of, of living during that period of time. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she wears a lot of that and I thought it was pretty effective performance because when, you, when you're dealing with something that leans into hokiness in which the yearling kind of does uh, any performance can collapse under its own weight at any moment. But I think she held it up pretty well. Uh, the one that was most interesting to me was Rosalind Russell, because she's one of my favorite comedic actresses who was in one of my favorite comedy movies of all time, his girl Friday. Uh, where right. she meets Cary Grant. If you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. It's, mm -hmm. it's great. One of the best. And they are talking that fast on purpose. That, that, that was what was supposed to happen. But she was a wonderful comedic actress. And to see her in Sister Kenny, which is a dramatic role, she is really strong. The only reason I wouldn't give her the award is because I'm pretty sure she's supposed to be Australian. And at no moment do I get in any way, shape, or form that she's Australian. <laughs> so that, that, that's probably a problem. But I think that would be a problem for me. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer Jones... All right, we, we just we just have to stop. We have to stop here for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So first of all, more brownface, where she's playing a, a native character, she's supposed to be half a Native American. Right. I, I just imagine this entire movie, the director King Vidor, just saying, "We we need more from you." 
Like I that that's I think that's like the only direction he had. And what I found out is he got his start in silent film. And once I read that, it made a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Because I think he's basically directing them to act as if they're in silent films, but there's right. actually dialogue. And the whole thing just seems insane. Her character is completely insane from the minute the movie starts to the minute it ends. Uh, <laughs> she just veers wildly from hating to loving the the character played by Gregory Peck, who is nuts. If you, if you watch Duel and the Sun and The Yearling back to back, you might just get whiplash from from watching those two Gregory Peck performances. Yeah. And I just feel like, um, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting his name now. The, 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 the third actor in, uh, in Duel in the Oh, Sun. it's Joseph Cotton. Joseph Cotton, who, Joseph Cotton, who I'm a big fan of. Me too. I, I just feel like he's there the whole time, like that character in the Muppets, just thinking like, why, why am I here? Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what am I doing in the middle of this? Uh, he, he's just trying to hold it down with all this chaos going on around him. But anyway, Jennifer Jones is a whole lot in that movie. Grabbing on a people's legs, she's just schizophrenic. Uh, I have no idea how this got a nomination until I realized that David Selznick not only produced this, but he also co-wrote the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Selznick's famous, obviously, for doing Gone with the Wind. And you can clearly see in every way that this is him trying to make a Western Gone with the Wind. He's trying yeah. to win that ring again. And it fails miserably. But I think because Selznick was very powerful at the time, he probably twisted some arms to get some nominations for this movie, which is the only way I can imagine anyone getting a nomination. And fun fact, he actually ends up marrying Jennifer Jones a couple of years later. So, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so so that's an interesting twist to that as well. My, my one more fun fact about Duel in the Sun, which I have to say, is it turns out that Scorsese saw this movie when he was really young, like four or five years old, mm-hmm. and he loved it. He said that it was one of his favorite movies. And that made me feel really good because it made me realize that everyone likes terrible movies when they're a kid. I can like The Last Dragon. Martin Scorsese can like Duel in the Sun, and that's okay. So that made me feel better, that even yeah. great directors can enjoy trash movies. And I think a better film historian than me can probably compare Duel in the Sun and see how it might have influenced Raging Bull or something like that, but I'm not <laughs> gonna I'm not gonna get into that. Just had to had to dive into Duel in the Sun for a minute there and say that Jennifer. I Jones love it. Uh, it's really a Loja level performance. That's a great comparison. I agree. Uh, Silly Johnson was also really good in, in Brief Encounter. It, it's just very it's very british you know very restrained but she's good in the role but i don't think they got it wrong here because uh this one's a pretty fascinating story too when when i, when I got into it because it turns out that uh so olivia de Havilland was nominated for an oscar before this in 42 and she was up against her sister joan fontaine mm-hmm. and she actually lost to her sister it's the first time i think maybe the only time that sisters face off against each other in the same category and Joan Fontaine beat her. So the movie that she was in at the time, 42, was directed by the same person who ends up directing this movie. And I think in every way, this movie was made with the express purpose to get Olivia de Havilland her Oscar because she was probably furious that she lost to her sister. And you can see that. So you just have her giving everything and you have the large 
age gap where she ages from like 20 to 50 and it just covers everything. They throw everything into the movie. It just feels designed specifically to get her the Oscar. So who am I to argue with that kind of work? It's like Leo, Leo DiCaprio level working hard to get that Oscar. And when, and when you get there, it's fine. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with her winning. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I think uh, she's deserving of it. And uh, for me, it was between her and and Celia Johnson because I really enjoyed Brief Encounter too. And uh, both of these are seemingly a little controversial for the time. I think Brief Encounter is is a woman like going out of her marriage with a man going out of his marriage, and and then to each his own with a an unwed mother. Um, yeah, they seem to stir the pot a little bit, which I loved. I, I didn't. And really think about films of this time dealing with things like that. So I was excited to see it. Um, but yeah, she just does a great job in this of 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 the pain of giving up the child. And I love that she also goes a little dark side when uh, the the child's adoptive parents need a bank loan and she's in control of it. And she's like, "Look, give me the kid, or I'm gonna basically ruin your life." Uh, yeah, I get pretty dark. Yeah, that was cool. I, I like that. Um, it was a really fun film. So, and I think she really carried it well. Um, like you said, the aging, I think she handled dealing with being those different ages uh, incredibly well. This is where being in black and white is effective because uh, it actually comes off really well because in some ways it's shaded and she's able to look older and uh, it doesn't look fake. It comes off yeah. pretty well. On screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, really good. I, I watched this last night and and uh, I came away from it very happy with it. So, yeah. Yeah, the script. And, and again, you know, the thing about tying into the war is that uh, you know, the story starts with her on Nightwatch, which is something that is obviously connected to the war in Britain, where they had people uh, kind of looking to see if they were going to be attacked or if something was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, at night, which means nothing to us now, but but it's a, a central part of the movie. So uh, just another way the war kind of reflects uh, another film. I love that when she <laughs> when she uh, gets the child, uh, I won't spoil it, but eventually it doesn't work out. And she asks her business partner or her business partner asks her what she wants. And she's like, I want to go to England and work 17 hour days. And I thought, Gosh, who wants to do that? What what a punishment! <laughs> it was a great in that movie. way, it's a really modern movie too. Uh, it, modern sensibility because you have someone who, who kind of becomes very powerful in business, kind of starts running the show very so, quickly. All of that is is pretty interesting. Yeah, I that I find a lot of these have sort of a contemporary feel to them. Um, it is interesting, and and I haven't really dug into that to unpack why but i think uh yeah maybe that post-war uh idea is you know maybe that kind of started where we are today in in a lot of ways in american culture and i mean i know this is british but um yeah i don't know but uh it's pretty cool to see things that hold up today and and that you can relate to in 2023 yeah Um, i know we're not going to get into screenplays and all that but the guy that wrote this one is Charles Brackett, who ended up like co-writing The Lost Weekend and Sunset Boulevard with Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. uh, and also wrote one of the first Titanic movies and actually won the Oscar for writing a oh. Titanic movie in 53. So I, I think a lot of it is that the screenplay is pretty strong and, and Brackett was a, a really good screenwriter. Yeah. 
I think you're right. All right, let's move on to best actor. Um, Frederick March won, of course, for the best years of our lives. Uh, but the other nominees were Laurence Olivier for Henry V, Larry Parks for the Jolson story, Gregory Peck for The Yearling, and good old Jimmy Stewart for It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I went with Frederick March on this one just because he's great. Everybody's great in this film, but I think he carries so much of the load in this film and uh, just does a really good job of of coming back from the war and, and dealing. He's he's dealing with the post-war world in a different way than the other two. Um sort of as like a patriarch almost. And and uh, I find that to be pretty interesting. He he really uh, handled it well. And um, I guess the other the other nominee here to think about would be Jimmy Stewart, of course. But I, I don't know that rewatching this, it, it feels like it's necessarily Oscar worthy. I mean, it's a good performance. It's great. But I, I just, I don't know. It, it, it felt a little over the top for me as it does every time I watch it uh, annually <laughs> but uh, I, I actually disagree I'll, I'll let you speak your piece so that I'll, that I'll, I'll go but I actually disagree on that one regardless. yeah yeah I don't know I just I, I think maybe the film appeals to me more um, and Frederick March had sort of a somber tone throughout it and and uh, that's kind of how the film is in a way and and uh, yeah it really spoke to me so maybe I, I uh, I'm not being objective about it. I don't know, but uh, it could also be that I have, I, I might have, it's a wonderful life burnout, honestly. <laughs> what did you go with? So my, my try to give a quick rundown here. Um, so Larry Parks in the Jolson story, look, it's actually a pretty good performance. By the way, Al Jolson wanted to play himself in this movie and, and they talked him out of it because he was too old, but that's the part there. Um, but Larry Parks does a good job of, of playing Al Jolson. He brings a lot of energy to the part. And there's just way, way too much blackface going on in this movie for me to take it seriously in any way. So I put that one aside. I understand you have to look at it at the time, but I feel like even in 46, uh, that's an unnecessary amount of blackface. So anyway, we're gonna put that one aside. Uh, I think the reason I like Gregory Peck and the Yearlings so much is because again, compared to Duel in the Sun, this seems like the greatest performance that's ever been given. If you, if you watch them close together, uh, this one feels much more like the Gregory Peck that you know. So it's a lot easier. He plays the stoic patriarch, kind of steering the movie along and trying to teach his son things about the world. And and I really liked it. I, I think the movie rises and falls more on him than, than anyone else because it's really just three people. And so. Uh, I like the performance. I don't think it's his best though, but I, I think you can clearly see uh, the glimpses of where you end up with To Kill a Mockingbird. It's almost like this movie is that movie in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. you can certainly make that connection. And Laurence Olivier, it, it, I mean, Laurence Olivier is fantastic. It, it, it's great. I mean, he, he's, he's really good in Henry V. I got no issues with it. But it didn't, it didn't move me all that much. I really appreciated the performance, though. I thought it was strong. Um, so it comes down to two people, right? It comes down to Frederick Marsh and, and Jimmy Stewart. I, I like Frederick Marsh a lot, but I take the opposite feeling because I do feel like this movie was more of an ensemble in some ways. Mm -hmm. he's, it's like a tripod holding up those three characters. True. And I really enjoyed his character because he did bring that different perspective of how a person who comes back and is kind of well-to-do 
accepts how they deal with that, knowing that they were just one of you know, thousands and thousands of other people and it was no better you know, during the war. And then also feeling a certain guilt about wanting to help these, these fellow soldiers who were trying to put their lives back together. And uh, that, that's why the, the speech that he gives at the dinner uh, is, is really effective and, and just a really good scene where you can see him grappling with these things, trying to accept where he, where he, he currently is compared to other people. But I, I actually do think that Jimmy Stewart deserves the award. And, and I, maybe I'm not as burned out on It's a Wonderful Life. But the thing that I think about when I watch it, and I'll give credit to my wife on this one because she talks about this, is that most performances back here in the 40s are pretty one note, and ex unless you're Jennifer Jones, then it's 20,000 notes. But for the most part, it's pretty stable. You know, you, you, you carry this part and play it straight, uh, whatever that part may be. And Jimmy Stewart, that character really runs the gamut of emotions. And of course, I'm always impressed when you can see a, a part's kind of teetering on the edge where a lesser actor can push it over and turn it into caricature and it just become a joke. And I'm not going to argue with you. This one gets close. A couple of times, he's pretty close. Yeah. There. But I think he pulls it back and it carries just such emotional weight that you watch this whole life unfold. And I, I think he does an excellent job of, of portraying someone whose life gets in the way of the life they want to live. And it makes the ending really, really effective. And the way that he plays it just moves me. And it still does. Almost every time that I watch it, it still moves me. So I think there's something to be said for that. But I still get choked up just a little bit at the end of its wonderful life, almost every time that I see it. So for me, it's just the performance that, that stays with me. And I, I'm going with Jimmy Stewart for this one. All right. That's great. I, I think, yeah, I mean... I, I can see how it's a touching performance, definitely. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, this and the best years of our lives were, and we'll get into this, I guess, with best director, but, um, you know, they were both directed by people, William Wyler and Capra, who were commissioned by the military to make films during the war. And uh, kind of two different perspectives on that, in a way. Um, I think It's a Wonderful Life is a little depressing for the most part but uh at least has a happy ending and that's cool but we'll talk about this more down the road um let's move on to best director again william wyler wins for the best years of our lives um the other nominees were uh david lean for brief encounter capra for it's a wonderful life clarence brown for the yearling and uh robert sidmock for the killers uh where did you go with with this one this one was also a difficult category for me. I mean, the first one is that it's really interesting that David Lean gets a nomination here for what's a very subtle movie. It's a very subtle, very British. And we know what's coming down the road for David Lean, where he directs these giant, epic movies. He ends up directing Lawrence of Arabia, Virgin of the River Kwai, Dr. Zhivago. I mean, uh, this one is so quiet in comparison that it shows a lot to his range as a filmmaker because he really needs to pull these specific performances out of a, a very small number of characters. Uh, and, and in a way, I think you were right, you were talking about before, this almost invents a genre of the people kind of 
being unhappy in their marriage and trying to find something else, which shows up in tons of movies after this, but I'm not aware of one before it. So I, uh, I just think that is an interesting note about this one. It's a little clairvoyant in that way, because I think that's that's really going to happen a lot more uh, in the, the subsequent years with, you know, people in America moving into the suburbs and having these partners come back from the war and, and just feeling a little off kilter in their lives. And and so I think, yeah, this is a bit of a premonition, which was. Yeah, they're just, and that's what we were talking about, how good 46 was, just some movies that seem very much ahead of their time in, in, the, in the, their sensibilities. So that's why it's fun to go back and watch these. Uh, the Yearling, I mean, people clearly seem to love The Yearling in 1947. Let's just, uh, let's just say it. But uh, I don't think there was anything spectacular about it where I would think that uh, Clarence Brown even deserves a nomination, much less a win. Seo uh, Mac is fascinating. So we can stop here and, and chat about this one for a little bit because Seo Mac made two movies in 46. Killers, which he was nominated for, and The Spiral Staircase. And if you take both of those movies together, I mean, Siomak ends up being very, very visionary in some ways, in the way that he he handles these two. I think he just is, he's such an interesting filmmaker. He does an excellent work with shadows and dark and light. And yeah. the Killers is just a masterclass in noir. If, if you had a show if you were to pick a certain handful of movies to show someone what noir was, I think this is definitely in that list that it, it's just this stark contrast of black and white. As I was saying before, like there used to be a lot of grays in, in, in noir movies, but at this point we're like almost in true black and white uh, people just in shadow and out of shadow. I, I think that this is a good time to tell people to subscribe, to get the after show because I'm going to have a few things to say about that uh, in particular with this Uh with him and his brother, in fact, and some of the things they did uh, around this time. So uh, that's going to be fun to talk about. Sorry. So yeah, no, so we can get into the spiral staircase then because it, it wasn't really nominated for much, but I think it's, you almost take these two movies of a piece. So, but The Killers is, is just a really textbook noir film. And I'm happy to see he was nominated because I do think that noir was overlooked at this time. So it's nice to see that acknowledgement. And I think that the direction, it's one of those movies where, where you can feel it. It's almost like you can kind of feel the, the work that's being done because it's mm -hmm. a very simple story. So it's just told very effectively. Uh, we know how we feel about It's a Wonderful Life. I think it's a wonderful movie, but I don't necessarily think it's Capra's best. So I'm okay with that. But we'll pause here to say, I thought that it was interesting that Hitchcock did not get a nomination for Notorious. Mm -hmm. There are many people that consider Notorious to be one of his best works. And there's a lot of very Hitchcock things in it, but the things that we kind of know him for kind of started here. And this was early on in when he was doing all these interesting things. And there's, there's that one shot that comes down at the party and the camera just swoops down into the hand of Ingrid Bergman where she's holding that key. Yep. And now we don't think much about that because we're used to seeing it. But back then, that shot couldn't even be done. They had to actually build a like a giant box on a crane and yep. just slide it down to try to get that shot and make it work. 
So he was just very innovative in the ways that he saw things and trying to, to bring his vision to life. And I think there's a lot of those little things in Notorious, which, which make it a, a good movie to watch. And I think he gets good performances out of all the actors. I, I'm pretty surprised that they did not give him a nomination here. Over Clarence Brown, I, I think it was a more effective directing job than that. I agree. But again, William Wyler, I mean, this is the year of the best years of our lives. And again, who we argue that a person making almost a definitive movie about World War II, which again, feels like a movie ahead of its time. As you're watching it, you, you get the sense that this is almost the cousin to a lot of the movies you get in the 70s with the disillusion, uh, disillusion about the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And there's some of that in this, which I was really interested to see because you just assume 40s movies are a certain way and, and you get a lot of rah-rah about everything. But this one really grapples with the, the feelings, good and bad, about the war itself and coming back from it. And there's that really good scene with that guy in the, in the, in the diner uh, that talks about uh, how we shouldn't have been in the war and you know, the, read the facts and all of that, which, I mean, was scarily prescient in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very modern. Um, he's doing his own research. So there's a lot of things here that, that feel ahead of its time. And you're dealing with someone, of course, I mean, just for the fact that he's dealing with a non-actor and gets a really effective performance out of him. So it, you can just tell for that reason, it's, it's a great directing job and I have no issue with why I would win it. I feel the same way. Um, it's hard not to give it to him uh, <laughs> just because it's such a good film. And uh, with the ensemble cast, you know, th- there's a lot more that goes into it and getting those performances from from more actors. But, you know, the quantity is there. And I'll say one thing is that it it's just such a beautifully photographed film. And it, it's actually shot by Greg Toland, who did Citizen Kane. And uh, how it didn't get a cinematography nomination is mind-blowing to me. Um, I think it's very akin to notorious in that way um actually a ton of great cinematography this year i'm going off on a tangent but uh that's okay because i think it's it's a good part to mention here that because 46 was an in-between we're we're bridging time periods that there was still a category for black and white and color cinematography which is kind of fun they were they were still separated because there were still a lot of black and white movies and there there were some color movies so and a, and a story Oscar, it, not just screenplay. There, there's a story Oscar too. That's kind of fun is going back and seeing that there were different things that, than what you know now. Um, but yeah, the, uh, just such a good year for cinematography, which has little to do with directing, I guess. But even those those uh, Sid Mac films, uh, both of them stunning to look at. Um, but getting back to director, Yeah. William Wyler uh, just did a fantastic job. And um, I agree with what you said about David Lean, just really uh, handling this quiet film with a couple characters uh, really well. Um, I, boy, I really loved Brief Encounter, but uh, you can't argue with William Wyler. I mean, just, just a tremendous film and tremendous direction. So yeah, he gets my vote as well. Okay. Let's let's get on to the best picture and uh, our last category. Obviously, went to the best years of our lives. Uh, 
which I think won seven other Oscars in addition to this, ultimately, if you count the the uh, special Oscar. Um, also nominated were Henry V, It's a Wonderful Life, The Razor's Edge, and The Yearling. Obviously, I went with the best years of our lives. Uh, just it, as as good as I thought The Razor's Edge was, and It's a Wonderful Life, even though I'm burnt out on it, I recognize it's a super fun film, and I the, the first 30 times I saw it around the Christmas holiday, I really enjoyed it. Um, but you can't argue with the best years of our lives. It, it, it's so appropriate. Uh, it, it just feels like an elevated film in comparison to what what is a slate of already really good films. It just feels above it. And Yeah, and I think that you get a movie like this that's so, that has such a, uh, the, the take on World War II, that you get this take about the war coming out, I mean, the, the war had only been over probably less than a year by the point that it came out. Yeah. So I, I think that that's what fascinated me as well, that, that you're already, to put this strong of a work reflecting on World War II so close to when the war ended is is a feat in filmmaking in a lot of ways because usually you don't get this kind of perspective until years down the road but it very much deals with a lot of the, the harsh issues people were grappling with, probably at the same time they were grappling with so i i think that it, it it resonates in a huge way with the audience i would imagine in 46 when it comes out yeah and i think william wyler as as a, one of the directors who was asked to document the war kind of dealt with this these feelings in real time and so he had uh a way to put that on screen you know very quickly after the war wrapped and um just just an outstanding job this is a film i had known about but i hadn't seen before so i'm really happy we did this because uh, it uh, it's a huge blind spot and uh i'm glad that i finally have seen it because it's uh it's something that everybody should see um i I assume you picked the same thing, but let's uh, let's hear it. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts other than that, though. Uh, just want to talk about Henry V because we didn't talk about it too much. Uh, but it also won an honorary Oscar. The thing that's interesting about Henry V is that it came out in '44. It was made uh, in Britain, and it was a very big movie. There It was actually very inspiring to the soldiers that were that were fighting the war because it was a brutal war for mm-hmm. England. Obviously, they run a lot longer than we were. And um, it was, and the story of Henry V is obviously a, a, an England that's, that's outmanned against the French that, that come back and, and win that battle, which, which the movie portrays. And it was very rousing for the people in Britain to see it. It, it. it fucked up a lot of soldiers. And so he actually wins an honorary award as well for kind of helping with the war effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's another movie that, that's tinged with the war, hard to separate from its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing I loved about it, in terms of just pure filmmaking, is that it opens with the Globe Theater and it and it shows you exactly what a Shakespeare performance would have been like in the Globe Theater in 1599, which is when it tells you, it shows you that's when this is taking place. And it actually takes you in the front of the house and backstage to show you how a performance would have been put on. And I love that. It's the first time I've ever seen something like that. And I I just thought it was a a great 
idea to give you that perspective. And then about 40 minutes in, it pulls out of the gold theater and, and obviously enlarges the movie because it has to give you big set pieces. But, but that part of it is great. Uh, this is a joke just for me, but I would say as I was watching it, I thought I'm surprised that they didn't give Olivier because this was his first directing job. I've been an actor before, but this is the first movie directed. I thought he did so good. I'm surprised they didn't give him a movie in the uh, an award in the future uh, against Martin Scorsese because <laughs> he was so good at it. As yeah. the first time directing, <laughs> it's a joke just for me. So no, I get it. That's great. Um, uh, but but anyway, so so. I really liked it for, for all those reasons. I, I, and I think it holds up pretty well. If you're going to watch, you know, Shakespeare adaptions tend to go one of two ways. They're either too much or almost too little. People strip them all the way down. You know, Orson Welles was good at that. And, and obviously Kenneth Branagh goes too much and everything. So, uh, but, but Olivier hits this nice little sweet spot where he gives you both sides of it. He gives you the theater aspect of it and the film aspect of it. And I think it's a really nice mix. So I, I would recommend it to people who are, who are interested in that or just a nice adaptation of Shakespeare. Yeah, um, I'll say that it's, uh, it, the filmmaking is beautiful. I mean, I I got very excited when I turned it on because I, I went to the Globe Theater a few years ago and uh, just like the, the crane shot coming in on it, it just got me so excited because I, had been inside of it and knew, uh, I, I don't think it's the same theater now. They recreated it, but um, just uh, knowing, like being there felt really cool to me. And uh, yeah, it felt like pretty innovative filmmaking, um, which was great. Even that opening crane shot is, is uh, pretty innovative. Mm -hmm. So, and I found myself wondering how they were able to pull that off at, at that time. So, so, so I, Henry the Fifth, there's that. We'll skip this part. <laughs> uh, Razor's Edge is talked about already. I, I thought it was a, a much more effective movie than I was expecting it to be. Mm -hmm. I, I think coming into this, my feeling was a lot of the movies would be like Duel in the Sun. I just like in my mind, I feel like Duel in the Sun, <laughs> I imagine when I think of like a mid-40s movie. If only. And, yeah, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that all of these movies were much more subtle than I expected and dealt with some real things and in, in really subtle ways. So I, I appreciated how effective a lot of these movies were. And Razor's Edge was another one that I really enjoyed watching. Um, and The Yearling was fine. I was able to watch that with my kids and uh, they liked it enough. I mean, they sat through it, so that's good. I'd say that, that, that I appreciate that. How'd they handle um, the ending? It was okay. I think they, well, they've watched enough Marvel movies where I don't think that uh, even, even a deer being, being shot affects them all that much. So, right. Um, yeah, Desens desensitized to it, I hate to say. But oh. um, so I enjoyed it as a family film. And, and I, I like that, that they would acknowledge that. I, I appreciate, I think now that I'm a parent, I appreciate a G movie a hell of a lot more than I used to. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I like this one. I thought it was a nice story. Uh, but of course, I, I agree with you. Where the best years of our lives is is the definitive movie of the year. Again, we, we try to say what movie reflects the period of time. So, and, and in some ways, it's a wonderful life because it's become so universal and beloved after the fact, almost doesn't represent 1946 anymore. It, it represents something else. 
a lot of people it represents Christmas, but it, it represents a lot of different things. Whereas the best years of our lives definitively feels of 46 deals with so many of the things that people were kind of dealing with in their own lives at the time. And in documents for the average person, the average moviegoer, what it feels like to have fought and come back and deal with the disorientation of coming back to a world that, that no longer feels familiar to you. So it, it, it's impossible to look at 46 to look at this movie and not put them together. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's just a great representation. And uh, what a fun year. I had no idea it was going to be this fun. Uh, we haven't done anything this far back before. And uh, I feel like I'm okay as far as how well versed I am on older films, but I don't think I've ever done a deep dive on a year like this. And I, I'm pretty excited to keep doing that. Um, it, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. you. I mean, you get Turner Classic Movies and, and things like that. You, you see what is considered the movies that hold up in, in other people's eyes. But there's a lot of movies that just slip under the radar or slip away as, as the years go on. And to yeah. be able to go back and, and revisit something that, that you never heard of or would never have thought to watch is, is really fun for us anyway, for, for movie nerds who like to go back. And uh, I, I love going back and seeing movies that make connections to other movies after that and open up new genres and, and seem completely fresh. Uh, so, so that's what's been most enjoyable about going all the way back. And seeing actors that we know of as old men, as young men, is also kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You get to see a young Hume Cronin who I didn't actually know was ever young, but he was. So barely. (laughs) But baby Dean Stockwell is pretty amazing. It's it's like quantum leap Dean Stockwell, his face on a child (laughs) with fewer (laughs) wrinkles. And that was super fun. (laughs) Well, speaking of going back, um, that does it for this episode, but we're going to get into what we'll look at in the next episode. And how we're doing it now is we have a random generator uh, where we're going to let a computer tell us which year we're going to look at next. Um, So I'm going to press the magic button here and we'll see what comes up. Production values are going up. We have a magic button now. It's very exciting. Oh, and it looks like it's 2013. Uh, which is a pretty fun year, actually. Um, just off the top of my head, some things that that came out in 2012, uh, which the 2013 Oscars represent. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty is a good one. Um, one I'm really going to love to get into is The Master. I have a whole lot of opinions about that. So, uh, yeah, looks like it's going to be a good year. And um I'm excited uh, from the past to the present. Sobolani's playbook came out. uh, Flight with Denzel Washington. That's another one. That's right. I think think we're getting played off now. So we're going to deal with this in the next episode. We'll get into all this. But uh, thanks everyone for being here. Yeah, thanks for listening. And, uh, you know, you can subscribe to our Substack at reoscar.substack.com where you're going to get additional episodes and uh, more writing from us. And you can also find us on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at 
at reoscard so check us out everywhere and uh thanks for listening and we'll see you next week or in two weeks we'll see you in two weeks <laughs>